The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, we are um, we're in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, which is um, monumental. I don't know if we'll finish tonight. Lord willing, we will. Um, Over a hundred messages, I think a hundred and two or three or four to be exact or inexact, Um, 402 pages of notes, not that I gave you, but that I have as I've studied this, Um, and it's been, uh, it's been really, it's just been a wonderful, wonderful journey. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I didn't check for sure, but I think we started around 2015, and uh, we've had a few interruptions <laughs> over the last few years. But um, we come to this final chapter, and uh, this final chapter is is really <laughs> hardly uh, just a few closing remarks, right? The, the this final chapter does a couple of things, few things. First, Paul actually takes up two more Corinthian questions, okay? And we'll talk about how we know that um, when we get there. Uh, But the Corinthians had inquired about the offering for the saints in Jerusalem, and they had inquired about a visit from Apollos, right? And uh, Paul's going to address both of those things, and then Paul is going to... uh, do what we could call uh, some, uh, some apostolic house cleaning, uh, some housekeeping issues that he's going to deal with with the Corinthians. And uh, I was, uh, you know, you come to the final chapter of a book that you've been in for a long time, and there's sort of this uh, little nostalgic feeling of having been in it for a long time. And, in, and of course, in an epistle, a lot of times, that closing section ends up being, um, you know, it's not like you're as thrilled about that as maybe 1 Corinthians 13 or something. But uh, the, the richness of this passage, this chapter, is really, really quite remarkable. So we're going to read the first four verses to get started. And the apostle says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem, and if it's fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. And so uh, notice that that little phrase uh, right at the beginning, now concerning, all right, that little phrase, now concerning, in the Greek text, is just, it's, it's peri day. And Paul has used it going back to chapter 7, verse 1. He's used it about five or six times. And we know that that little phrase, now concerning, is related to questions that they had sent to Paul. And we know that because of what he says in chapter 7 and verse 1, now concerning the things which you wrote to me, right? So that little phrase, now concerning, is, uh, is, is just a, uh, a, a clue to us that Paul is actually responding to some of the questions. Now, of course, some of their questions were huge, right? Um, these two uh, seem relatively minor compared to some of the other questions that they asked. Um, But this has to do with um, the offering for the saints in Jerusalem, all right? And uh, it's interesting, if, if you read through the book of Acts and then Paul's epistles, you'll realize that this offering for the saints in Jerusalem was actually a a long project of his. And there was a very simple reason, and that is because famine had hit Judea. 
You actually read about this in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 11. And so the Judean churches, and especially the churches in Jerusalem, really had been suffering. And of course, in the ancient world, um, as, as in many places in the third world today, a famine may last for two or three years, but the effects of that famine will continue for years after. And so Paul was um, all about uh, famine relief for the, the saints in Jerusalem. And as one commentator put it, it, it was simply the practical compassion in the face of great distress. And so, of course, Paul would have had um, very, very fond connections and relationships to the church in Jerusalem. And so he says, the, the, uh, the question that you asked me about, I've given the same instruction I'm about to give you to the churches in Galatia. And in fact, even in the book of Galatians in chapter 2, you might remember that when Paul is actually uh, um, goes and seeks out the, the so-called pillars of the church, right? What they were to me, he says, makes no difference. Um, but he sees Peter, James, John, And he says, all that they told us to do was to remember the poor, that is the poor in Jerusalem, the very thing we were eager to do, all right? Um, When you get over to 2 Corinthians, one of the lengthiest sections on giving in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is devoted to giving, principles of giving, that are directly related to the offering for the saints in Jerusalem. When we get to Romans chapter 15, maybe by the end of the year of 2025, um, Paul will actually mention extensively, like I think 15, 22 to 32, mention extensively this offering for the saints in Jerusalem. And so Paul's going to give some instruction to the Corinthians. Now remember, Paul's been careful with the Corinthians when it comes to money, right? You think back to chapter 9, that's going to come into play a little later. And uh, he gives uh, the win of their giving. Notice, he says very clearly, on the first day of every week, all right? So what's the significance of of identifying the first day of the week, well, according to Acts 20 and verse 7 and uh, Revelation 1.10 and and, uh, the earliest apostolic practice is the first day of the week was the day that that Christians assembled because of the resurrection of Jesus. We get the very, very uh, name of Sunday being the Lord's Day, the day that belongs to the Lord, uh, from Revelation 1.10. And so it seems that what Paul's doing is basically saying, so on the first day of the week, that is as you gather together as a church, what are you to do? You're to be, put, you're to be putting money aside and saving. Now, it, it seems like maybe Paul's just saying, put the money in the bank account. But in all likelihood, I think that what Paul's doing is he's saying that the church actually should be systematically setting aside the contributions that you're saving and bringing in. And so then how much should they bring in? Well, Paul answers that too. They are to give as he may prosper, right? So in other words, this giving is, um, first of all, it's a special uh, giving. This is not necessarily considered to be the ongoing support of the ministry, as you see in 1 Corinthians 9. This is actually designated to a very specific need. And Paul says, basically, you know, those of you that that God has prospered, you should be giving more. Uh, Those of you that that may not be as, as well off, you give what you can, but you give as God has prospered. By the way, that will be the very same principle that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 3 and 4, and that is that you, you give according to how God has prospered. So why does Paul actually say, this is how I want you to do it? Well, he says at the end of verse 2, so that no collections would be made when I come. 
That's interesting. In other words, Paul is saying, um, I want you to do it this way so that when I get there, we're not taking a special offering. We're not passing the Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets over and over and over again until it hurts. Um, Why do you think Paul would actually go to, to that length to give this kind of instruction simply to turn around to say, so that no offerings are, are taken when I'm there. Well, let's face it. The Corinthians were not easy on Paul, right? And you could well imagine Paul simply wanting to safeguard himself so that when he came back to Corinth, nobody would be able to say, see, that guy is all about the money, right? That's not just a 20th and 21st century concern in the day of tele-evangelists. It was a concern even in the apostles' day. And so Paul didn't want to do anything that made it look like there could be any possibility of impropriety. He didn't want to be seen as manipulative. He didn't want to be seen as actually exercising apostolic leverage on the people. He just wanted you do what you're supposed to do before God as a church so that when I get there, it's all taken care of, all right? And of course, we, uh, we wish to God that um, the church today would actually take such precautions in order to avoid all appearance of financial impropriety. Paul goes further, in fact, and uh, basically says, so verse 3, so when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem, and if it's fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So, So notice what Paul does. He not only says, I want all of the financial stuff taken care of before I get there, but then he turns around and he says, I'm not even going to be the one to carry it to Jerusalem. You guys pick an approved delegation of people that are trustworthy, people that are reliable, people that have integrity. And, and, and it, notice, notice how much deference Paul um, puts into practice here. If it's fitting, I'll go with them. In other words, if you think it's okay for me to go on the journey with them, I'll be more than happy to accompany them. I'll provide them with letters from the Jerusalem church so that they know that this is money that, that, that basically I raised for you guys. But if you want me to go, I will. If not, no, no problem. Okay. And so there's this, uh, this wonderful sense of deference and, of course, what this would afford, and, and again, one thing that we don't typically get. So you remember um, a number a few years ago, the hurricane came in and just decimated uh, the Dominican Republic, remember? And remember, we took um, uh, some special offerings and sent that, those offerings to a church that we trust down in Santa Domingo, right? Um, you might think, well, that's what Paul's doing, just sort of disaster relief kind of stuff. Actually, what he's doing is, is greater than that, as good as that is. He's sending delegates from a Gentile church to bring financial relief to a Jewish church. Okay? You think there was any strategy in that for Paul, right? You do remember what Paul says in Romans 11 and, and in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and that is, listen, uh, it, we've, we've reaped spiritual benefit from them. Is, is, is it really, um, you know, uh, out of line for them to turn around and reap material benefit from us? Okay. And so, Paul deals with this and, uh, and again, you know, you can't help but to see Paul, the pastor, having in mind that, uh, so the, the delegation actually bringing the gift and having face-to-face fellowship between churches, right, which would have been a good thing in and of itself, but Gentile and Jewish churches, right? 
Okay, that brings us to 5 through 9. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits." But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So in verses 5 to 9, Paul talks about just, in a sense, just future travel and ministry plans. He says, my goal is is that uh, I'm going to go through Macedonia, and perhaps on my way, perhaps I'll winter with you, all right? so the, the trip, by the way, notice that little phrase in verse 6, so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. You know what that phrase is. How are they going to send him on his way? Financially. Same, word, same phrase is used in Romans where Paul's talking in, in essence about the Roman church actually sending him on his way to Spain, right? Now, it's, it's interesting because earlier in this same letter, Paul was actually very conscientious to say, when I was with you, this is chapter 9, when I was with you, I actually didn't take anything from you, right? I actually labored freely among you, not taking anything. He wanted to uh, not put himself in the place of actually being um, uh, the laborer who was being paid his wages because there were certain rascally Corinthians that would have used it against him. But notice, he'll labor among the Corinthians without pay. But when it comes to him actually pursuing missionary endeavor beyond Corinth, he says, I'm hoping that you'll help me on my way. So you can see, in a sense, sort of Paul's perspective on the way that, um, that he sees the support of the church. And so he wants to spend winter with them. Of course, he didn't travel in winter in those days. And spend time, invest more in them spiritually. And uh, then he says, if the Lord permits, right? This is James 4.15, if the Lord wills, all right? And so then he talks about remaining in Ephesus in verses 8 and 9. He says, but I'll remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. So if you go uh, back to Acts chapter 19, you see Paul's ministry in Ephesus, all right? So Paul's ministry in Ephesus was uh, lasted, anybody remember off the top of their head? Two years. He's there for two years, right? It all starts by him running into some disciples from uh, John the Baptist who hadn't even heard there was a Holy Spirit, right? And then you end up having this, um, this uh, really pretty incredible scene of the apostle, and um, there are these uh, seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish, mu- I was going to say mu- musician, magician, and um, they go around and they're trying to cast out demons. You remember this, this happens in Ephesus. They're trying to cast out demons. And of course, the demons say, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but who are you? And then the demons actually act, thrash these guys and send these seven Jewish guys uh, wounded and naked running down the street. Well, guess what? The gospel's actually starting to kind of create a little stir in, uh, in Ephesus. And then, of course, Paul starts preaching. And what ends up happening in chapter uh, 19 and verse 10, actually Luke summarizes, says Paul was there for two years and the word of the Lord spread throughout all of Asia from Ephesus. Okay? Now Asia, by the way, is the province, Roman province of Asia, not Asia as in, uh, you know, like China. And so here's Paul and he's ministering in Ephesus. Now what ends up happening is Paul... Um, you might remember every day they're going, very fruitful, very successful ministry, right? And so just think about what Paul says right here, okay? I'm going to remain until at least Pentecost. 
because there's this wide door of ministry that's open for me. Now, you have to understand what ends up happening is that Paul and his companions are traveling, walking every day uh, to the marketplace and so forth, and there's this demon-possessed girl that ends up following them every day, and this demon-possessed girl is actually a slave that is owned by people that are exploiting her. She is a basically a uh, fortune teller, and so she's got managers who make a lot of money from her. And so she's following Paul and Silas and, and the companions, and she's saying every day, uh, these are servants of the Most High God. And in one of the best passages on Paul's personality, it says, and Paul being quite annoyed... does what? He turns around and he casts the demon out of this girl. And she becomes a follower of Jesus. You know what happens next? A riot starts. Because Paul started to make a dent in the economy of Ephesus. (laughs) You start messing with people's money. That's when things really start to get out of of hand. And so here is this this riot that starts, and and you can read all about it. The, 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 The section ends, and there's Paul, and he's teaching for two years, and the word just spreads, right? And so... Uh, There's such a revival in Ephesus that those who practiced magical arts, by the way, Ephesus was a major center for for power and magic, okay, which, by the way, makes a tremendous amount of sense when you read the book of Ephesians, all right, principalities, powers, so forth. And so here's Paul, and people are getting saved out of that, and guess what they're doing? They're burning their occultic books that, that... the price goes into the millions of dollars. So Paul has this incredibly fruitful ministry. And he says to the Corinthians, God's opened a door for me. Okay? But there are many adversaries. Right Now, there's always going to be adversaries to the gospel, right? But Paul actually had, remember in chapter 15, if there's no resurrection, why am I fighting wild beasts in Ephesus? The wild beasts were the opponents that actually were against Paul. And yet Paul understood that, that, that when God was, was opening wide that door of opportunity, that that was an opportunity for the gospel itself. And even though there would be opposition, the kingdom of God would advance. I don't think that we're probably in um, a much different place today. Is, is, has there been over, let's just say that just the last few years, increased hostility towards Christianity in the West? Increased hostility towards the church? Has there been increased hostility toward the church just in the last few months? Absolutely. And so what does the church need to do? Well, you know, just like Paul, just just keep preaching the word, right? Just keep preaching the word. Just keep proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and, and look for those wide open doors. And, you know, you can't help but to think that we're living in a time where, where people are scared and people... Um, don't know what's going on and they see, you know, the the West Coast burning down and they see violence in the streets and people have got to be at their wits end. Who knows, but this might be a glorious opportunity for the gospel. Will there be opponents? And the answer is, of course. And so... By the way, for Paul, Paul had a lot of opponents in in Ephesus, but some of them were rioters, all right? 
That comes then to general instruction, and uh, you, you, you have to appreciate this part, verses 10 and 11. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. For he's doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. And this is sort of an interesting thing, right? Because uh, back in chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, Paul actually says, I'm sending Timothy to you so that he can teach more about um, my way to you, right? So in other words, give you instruction on practical Christian living and so forth, as I would do if I was there. And, and, but then... Right after he says he's sending Timothy in 16 and 17, in verse 18, he has to tell the Corinthians not to be arrogant. So remember, as we've gone through 1 Corinthians, um, what what kind of stuff just turns the crank of the Corinthian church, right? Well, power, right? Gifts and not helps or service, but big, ostentatious gifts that everybody says, wow, wisdom, knowledge, right? So here's the Corinthians, and um, they, are, uh, they are sort of like the, uh, the powerhouse church in, in the ancient world. They're all about the show. They're all about the power. They're all about the display. And so, by the way, when they complain about Paul in 2 Corinthians, you know what they're going to say? He, his speech is contemptible. He's unimpressive. We actually prefer the super apostles who have dreams and visions. Remember all of that in chapters 10 through 13? And so, here you are, this is the Corinthian church. Um, this is, uh, they may not have been a mega church, but let's just say they had a mega church mindset. And Timothy's going to come. And you know what Paul has to say? Be nice to him. Don't give him cause to be afraid. Why would Timothy be afraid? Well, there's good reason to think that Timothy had at least a streak of timidity. You read 2 Corinthians, and what's, what is Paul doing? He's actually trying to stir Timothy up. God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And so here's Timothy, just ordinary old Timothy, easygoing Timothy. And he's about to go to the church at Corinth. When I was in seminary, there was a church in Portland, still exists. I won't say what church it is. They had a reputation that they'd have a pastor, this is no joke, for 6 to 12 months, and then he was gone. They had a reputation of just chewing up pastors, spitting them out, moving on to the next one. There are stories that I could tell, but I don't want to derail myself. You could imagine the Corinthian church looking at Timothy as this guy is so totally unimpressive. You could imagine some of those pockets of Corinthian resistance. So if they're going to be rough with Paul, what are they going to do to poor Timothy? And so Paul has to say to them, listen, um, be nice to him. Send him on his way in peace. Receive him like you would receive me. You know, I often think about the way that Paul's circle of friends worked. So you had Timothy. His mother was Jewish. His father was 
Greek. So ethnically, he was he was a boy between two worlds growing up. Okay. Probably had some some timidity, right? Can't help but to read Second Timothy and just kind of see Paul trying to say, you know, hey, be strong, be a good soldier, that kind of thing. But then you had Titus. Titus. I think Titus had a square jaw, pretty good Roman nose, broad shoulders, and didn't take anything from anybody. And in fact, amazingly, when Titus goes to Corinth, he comes back with a good report. (laughs) And so you have... You know, then you have Silas, and but you have these guys, and they're all different, right? They're all different. And Paul utilizes them in the midst of all of their differences. But he has to sort of, in a sense, protect Timothy. Be nice to him. Send him on his way. Now, what's interesting and, and sort of uh, supportive of this perspective on Timothy is, notice verse 12, but concerning, so there's our phrase again, So that indicates what? That the Corinthians had probably inquired about Apollos. Now concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, uh, and it was not at all his desire to come now. But he'll come when he has opportunity. So here's Apollos, and what do we know about Apollos? From Acts 18. Two things, eloquent and mighty in the scriptures, okay? powerful preacher with, a, with an eloquence that was easy to listen to. So what do you think the Corinthians are doing? Hey, by the way, Paul, do you think you could get Apollos to come and do our spring Bible conference for us? And so Paul says... Well, I encouraged him to come, but actually he says he's not willing right now. Now, I don't know for sure, because I, I can't read Paul's heart, but I, um, you, you could actually translate the phrase, he was quite unwilling. And I think Paul probably just got a little, just a, a small little bit of pleasure out of just telling the Corinthians, hey, uh, I tried to get him to come, but uh, he said, <laughs> the Corinthians, are you kidding I'll go when I have opportunity. Yeah. So when he gets a chance, he'll go. Then we get to verses 13 and 14. And this uh, this is worth the price of admission right here. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you do be done in love. By the way, that is, that's a sermon series right there. Those two verses, that is a total sermon series. Paul now gives some ethical instruction. And the very first thing he says is, be on the alert. Okay? Now, now, by the way, this, uh, the, uh, the Greek phrase is uh, Gregoreo, from which we actually get the name Gregory. This is, um, ends up being one of the primary ethical exhortations in the New Testament, be on the alert. In fact, where does this actually um, uh, uh, start? Well, it starts with the words of Jesus, who, by the way, let me just, Matthew 24, 42, 43, 25, 13, 26, 38, 40, and 41. By the way, so the Garden of Gethsemane gets three uses of be on the alert. Six times in Matthew, just in three chapters, you have be on the alert, be on the alert, be on the alert. This exhortation isn't lost on Peter. Be on the alert, 1 Peter 5.8. Your enemy, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Three times in the book of Revelation, be on the alert, be on the alert. And of course, the very idea is... You have to be on guard. You have to be on uh, 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 on alert against 
every form of unbelief, every kind of false doctrine, every kind of temptation. You have to be on the alert against anything that could possibly move you off of the gospel. So we don't sing the hymn very much, but we probably should rise my soul to watch and pray, right? Great hymn against fighting what? Fighting temptation. And so in this little phrase, be on the alert, what Paul's doing is he's giving them an ethical exhortation that is rooted in the gospel uh, itself, rooted in the very uh, teaching of Jesus And I will tell you that every time I hear, be on the alert, it makes me realize how unalert we really are. Did you you live today in a sense of being on guard against temptation? Temptation could be crouching right around the door. This next step could lead me down a path that I don't want to go. I need to be on the alert. Here's the problem, is that we're not alert. We need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. I like reading... um, books about Old West history, and I was reading a book one time about the cattle drives that would start in Texas, and, you know, they'd drive the cattle up to Abilene or some other place, and and um, these guys were in, oftentimes, in the saddle 24 hours a day driving the, these cattle, especially if they had to get them to market, and you know what they would do? Oftentimes, they would spit their tobacco juice into their fingers and then rub it in their eyes. Why? Because it stings. And if it stings, you're not going to fall asleep and fall out of your saddle. Now, I prefer the method of chewing sunflower seeds, but... Uh, (laughs) you did what you had to do so that you didn't fall asleep, right? Here's Jesus with his disciples in the garden. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Be on the alert. Be on guard, right? It's a good word for us. Notice the next exhortation, stand firm in the faith, okay? By the way, this does go back to uh, 1558, be steadfast, immovable, right? So the idea is stand firm in the faith. Now, in light of what we just saw in chapter 15, what do you think Paul might specifically have in mind here? Stand firm in the faith, that is, in, in the truth that's been delivered, especially against attacks against things like the resurrection, okay? Stand firm. By the way, a common Pauline exhortation. He could actually say to the, the Thessalonians, we rejoice when you stand firm in the Lord. Okay? Standing firm. And uh, if, if you look this, this phrase up, it's the idea of being firmly committed in conviction and belief. Okay? It's, uh, it's the sentiment and attitude at Luther, of Luther at the Diet at Worms. Um, you know, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, amen. Right? It is just that sense of being resolute. And Paul says, stand firm, be resolute in the faith. Don't get budged off in either direction. Next exhortation. Act like men. I didn't even look to see what the ESV does. Does the ESV say act like men? Yeah. So, um, I was going to make a gender-neutral joke, but I'll pass. Um, This phrase, act like men, is the idea of, by the way, it's only used here in the New Testament. 
conduct yourself in a courageous way. Conduct yourself in a courageous way. You know, we actually have a phrase that may actually be similar to the Greek phrase. Anybody know what it is? Man up. Man up. Okay. What's interesting is that although this phrase is only used here in the New Testament, it actually is used at least three times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So, notice you go from act like men, that is, conduct yourself courageously, to then be strong. And and, and be strong here is, is to be strong, to be strengthened or to be empowered. It's passive voice verb. And so, there is this... Um, be uh, connection to 1558, to be immovable, to remain firm. And this is the idea. So act like men and be strong. And so to be strong, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 3.16, is to be empowered by the Holy Spirit in the inner man. All right? Now, these, these, th- there's a fifth exhortation, and we'll get to in just a second. But just notice this. Um, These last two, so numbers three and four, act like men and be strong, are actually used three times paired together in exactly this way in the Septuagint. The first is when Joab is about to lead his men into battle. You remember he says, we're going to divide forces, and if I start to be overcome, you come help me. If I'm overcome, you come, I'll come help you. And then he says, in the Septuagint, act like men and be strong. Okay? And you know, our English Bibles translate this in, in, in the Old Testament. It's just typically be strong and courageous. You have this pairing also in two different psalms, and uh, you can see it in Psalm 27, 14, be strong and courageous, and 31, 24, be strong and courageous. So exhortations 3 and 4 are, are these exhortations that deal with a, a fortitude and, um, and, and a strength not only of character, but a strength of conviction. And I was thinking earlier, um, C.S. Lewis had a, a, a chapter in the abolition of man, a chapter called Men Without Chests. Okay. Men Without Chests. And I thought how, how that actually describes so much of what's going on today. Men in, in ministry today, caving all over the place. It's absolutely disheartening to me. So I, I'm not going to say who it was, but he's the current president of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. He's a young guy and uh, pastors a, a, a big church and was... One of, the, one of the Reformed or Calvinistic Southern Baptists and was one of these guys that when he got elected, you were like, yes. Now, less than a year later, promoting critical theory, promoting um, tolerance, acceptance of LGBTQ whatever the next letter is going to be that's added. And as a complementarian, that is believing that there are differences for men and women in the roles of uh, home and church, uh, actively promoting women preachers, even turning his pulpit over to Beth Moore. Okay. Now, let me just say that that's, that's just not, that's not an isolated incident. 
there are churches, there are institutions, and there are, there are men of high stature who are just absolutely buckling under the weight of cultural influence. And so when I read about a pastor like Josh Williamson in England, I want to say, God, raise up more men like that. Raise up more men that would would actually be loving and tender and compassionate, but as bold as a lion, regardless of the consequences. Regardless of, of, of... what you think of, of John MacArthur's decision, I, for one, have been in favor. I just wish he would have done it the first Sunday in May. But I will tell you, I thank God for John MacArthur and what he's doing. And the reason why it is important, okay, is because of, of, of the position that he has. The, um, the status of his, of his congregation and the longevity and, and to actually be someone that stands up and says, this is, this is where we stand. This is what we believe. And to be a person of, of conviction. It is, it is so disheartening to see people curb and 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 pare away their convictions when their convictions become inconvenient for them men are undermining their own their own qualification to lead the church of god by not being men and being strong The reason I save the fifth one until after that is because Paul turns around and says, do everything in love. So be courageous in love. Be strong in love. Be on the alert, lovingly. Stand firm in love, right? So love, love is the pervasive Christian ethic and motive for all that is being done. It is, it is the, um, the center and the circumference of all of this. And do you think it's actually important to meditate on the fifth ethical instruction, do everything in love in light of the previous four? And the answer is absolutely, because you can end up being um, a, a real misfit that's just standing firm. You can be an absolute, total, complete jerk as you're trying to be a man and be strong, right? There's no fundamental virtue in just being contentious, argumentative, and combative. To be able to stand strong and to be courageous, stand firm, have conviction, not be moved, and to do it with love is the hard thing. Now, those that don't like your conviction will immediately say, you're not loving. Okay. You're judgmental, you're critical, you're a crank, you're a misfit. You, you know, here's the thing. Is that our master knows. Okay. So, Don't let the fear of criticism make you compromise your conviction. Love from a pure heart and with a good conscience 
love in a way that you can say. So, so if, you have, if you have somebody that says to you, uh, so what do you think about, um, about uh, homosexuality? They, that's not the word they use anymore. But th- what, what do you think about gay rights? What do you think about this? The minute that you say anything that's, that is not affirmative, you are automatically unloving. But in God's eyes, that is not true. What would be unloving is to knock off the edges of the truth in order not to be offensive. That's what is ultimately unloving. And so, can you speak the truth in love? The answer is, not only should we, we must. But don't let culture decide what being loving looks like. Let Scripture decide what being loving looks like. Right? Scripture is what matters anyway. Okay? And so this exhortation is, is really uh, absolutely, um, to me it was gripping. And so we're not going to finish tonight, so we'll uh, finish next week, I, I promise. Yeah. yeah, let's pray. Father, these, these days that we live in are uncertain and scary days, and we pray that we would embrace the exhortations of your word even though following that instruction will put us outside of the mainstream of acceptability. We pray that you would help us to be loving and truthful. Help us, Father, to be on the alert. Father, we know we have an enemy an enemy without, an enemy within. Help us to be alert. Pray that you would, Lord, wake us up if we're asleep. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to stand firm in the faith. We pray, Father, that we would be, Lord, even if it just comes down to, (laughs) I'm the last one. Pray, Lord, that you'd help us just to remain steadfast. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.